Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of the Film Score Podcast. Today I'm sitting down with the very talented composer Harry Escott. Harry might be most well known for working with Steve McQueen on his very good film Shame, as well as working with Patty Considine, scoring the film Hard Candy and Retablo, and quite a few really good choral works as well, including a rendition of Thomas Tallis's O Light of Light. However, today we're talking about the new BBC One series Roadkill, starring Hugh Laurie, that Harry's scored. I just released a couple weeks ago, and released, I think, last week in the U.S. as part of PBS Masterpiece Theatre. It's a really good score, really energetic, jazzy, and just suave. So it was a lot of fun to talk about. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If so, be sure to listen to the other conversations I've had, and... Follow me on all the various social medias. Now, I hope you enjoy. I sure enjoyed giving this interview. So sit back and have a listen. Harry, I really appreciate you joining me today. How have you been? Very well, thanks. I'm delighted to be chatting to you. Well, great. So as of our recording, Roadkill, new BBC One series, and in the US, it's going to be on PBC uh, Masterpiece Theatre just started releasing and it seems like a really timely show the main character uh, hugh laurie plays peter lawrence this rising conservative mp to me it seems like given the climate that that would be a very that he'd be someone you'd want to root against but listening to your score it never sounds like that what was your decision making process in kind of creating the sound for him in the in the show well, I think what's what's interesting about the score and the show is that, and they're sort of they are inextricably linked. Is when I first chatted to Michael Keller, the director, he made it very clear that he didn't want the score to sort of, I suppose, like most scores that I've done and most people are asked to do nowadays, sort of follow the minutiae uh, of the drama and the narrative. So there's lots of sort of quite dark and sort of strange things happen throughout the course of Roadkill, but essentially the main character, our central figure the politician played by Hugh Laurie is not Peter Lawrence. He's, he's not, he's a sociopath, really. He's not interested in any of that. He doesn't care about the roadkill. He doesn't care about the consequences of his, his actions at all. Um, he's sort of a very suave, sophisticated, shiny character that's kind of irritatingly likable, despite what he ends up doing um, and his actions. So I think, and everything is really from his point of view. So I think that was what they wanted the focus of the show to be and the focus of the music to be was sort of backing that up. So the music is actually quite sort of, elegant and pretty and tuneful and melodic and it isn't really very often occasionally it's you sort of have to do the nuts and bolts and the tom and jerrying of like there's a super dark bit and it occasionally gets a bit darker but a lot of the time it's just sort of it's sort of gliding over the top of all of the nonsense that's going on underneath and i think that because that's kind of what his character does all the way through uh, which is is i think what's really interesting about the drama i know everyone else has got drawn into the politics of it and you know but i think that in terms of for me as a musician, dealing with emotions, humans, characters, sort of studies, I think that's what I find really fascinating about that. And that doesn't really matter if you're in the States and you don't really understand the sort of the machinations of, you know, the Conservatives versus Labour or whether it's Democrat or Republican. It's more just a particular figure in a position of power and how those kind of character traits that might, by a psychiatrist, be deemed to be a disorder or a syndrome or something that might make you sick 
can actually make you very successful. A bit like the psychopath test. I don't know if you read that, but it's the same kind of idea, oh. really. It was quite interesting. So that was why, yes, that's why the music, and I was a joy to do as a composer, because a lot of the time, nowadays, especially there's a lot of the work I do, which is more sort of art house, social realist dramas and film scores, for things like that. The job of the composer, it seems to be quite sophisticated uh, as a scorer. You're, if you're not noticed, that's generally quite a good thing. I mean, obviously, if you're doing Batman or Star Wars, you obviously that's a completely different thing. But for a lot of the stuff I do, you don't really want anyone to notice that you've done anything. You just want them to feel a bit uneasy or a bit sad or, you know, whereas this is completely the different thing. It's like it just deliberately has its own character and it's deliberately quite a caricature almost um, in its own way. And it's very stylized. So it was quite fun to do. I had a general idea of the plot before listening to your score and I listened to it a few times. And I was not expecting this jazzy piano and bass heavy score that, I mean, it, it's playful, it's stylish. It, it does have dangerous aspects that come up and especially once the the drumming gets a little more heavy and chaotic but then that that still goes away and, and the suave nature comes back and I thought that was really interesting because you're right you're really just honing in on uh, Hugh Laurie's character and I have to say I, I didn't expect it but it was really fun to listen to because of that not to say that you know being a sociopath is fun <laughs> no, I'm sure not. But I think it's interesting that there are there are there, as you say there are moments where I mean he's a really he is a suave, sophisticated character. He really is, and he sort of glides around the place. But the moments where those drums begin to take over, it begins to get a bit darker or more wobbly or throbby or the stuff, the other stuff that you might know I've done. And guess oh that's kind of yeah more what you would expect. That's when he begins to be seriously threatened, and even he's a bit like mm, hang on maybe this isn't going so well. There are a few points where. We sort of made the conscious decision to say, no, this is now, this is really high stakes. This is, is potentially going to totally turn him over. And even he realizes, because he, although he's a sociopath, he doesn't really care about, he's not, he doesn't have empathy for other people. He does at certain points care that the rest of the world out to get him might actually bring him down and stop him progressing, which is what he can, is concerned about. So those points where he thinks these things might stop him from moving forward or it might catch up with him, then it's, it gets a bit more concerned. But then... The act is back and he's just gliding over like a swan. But he is kind of he's kind of cool. He's annoyingly likable. I well, actually, I don't think anyone's really likable in the drama. They're all quite unlikable. But he is he's the most likable in a way. Because of that, I think the the path that you chose ends up working really well to to kind of create that likable suave attribute of him. Was that the first thing you jumped to, or did you try a few different sounds before finding one that really worked? Well, we, we tried quite a few different things. We tried taking ourselves a bit too seriously and saying this is a really political thing and it's an important thing. And then we, and then we thought, no, it's not really, it's not really, kind of it. And then, so we tried quite a few different things. And actually, it's interesting, the response um, so far in the UK, this, this is the second week now, it's going to be aired now. So the response in the UK has been interesting that a lot of people have uh, commented on the score and a lot of people have mentioned that it's, um, it's very different and it's very refreshing, but it's not... It's actually a throwback to the scores of the 70s, or it's not like new music. It's, not, it's, just, it's just not what we're normally asked to do now. And what we really listen to a lot, pay a massive sort of debt of creativity to, the scores of David Shire, fantastic composer who did The Conversation, a Coppola film, All the President's Men. Those scores, listen to those scores, there's a lot of similarities in the sounds and textures. I mean, of course, they're bigger and they're big movies and stuff, but right. it's more a throwback to those... So let me tell you a story. There's a lot of that in it. It's very on its sleeve in terms of musical storytelling. I mean, it's very clear in that way. 
And also, at a very basic level, if you're like a, a music student or thinking about how can you musically detail a, a sort of a Machiavellian composer who's a bit snaky, and straight away you're in, I don't know if you, I'm obviously on the phone here, but I straight away, you're going to go into chromaticisms, aren't you? And that's basically what the straw does, all these kind of weird. And also those non-related chord changes, so you go from all the way through those C major to kind of slightly odd, slightly odd, then shifting back, and it doesn't really progress in normal functional harmony like most of the music of the last three or four hundred years has kind of developed in that way. And so it's more shifty around like impressionist music like Debussy. So it's not new, it's just it was just a fun thing to tap into, I think. And that's what was quite fun. And, and happily the director was into it as well. So he turned up to all of the sessions, which I'd never had before mm. and um and was really involved and he sort of really believed in it, I think, and was very encouraging. So yes, a very long-winded answer, but we did spend a lot of time thinking about the tone. And then once we got it, we then thought it would be good to have a single instrument all the way through because he's a very singular man and, and that was great. And then as we then developed, we realised actually you know, there are a couple of scenes with the montage sequences and then things where it gets a bit darker. And we were like, actually, we do need a few more things. So we thought, well, let's stick with the piano because it's kind of classy. It seems mm -hmm. to suit his character really, really well. And we loved that chromaticism. But then we added sort of classic cabaret band, I suppose, isn't it? Sort of double bass, drums, vibes, doubling with the clarinets. Not quite klezmerie or jazzy clarinet, it's a bit sort of, it's like a classical musician playing it. Once again, trying to keep it quite sort of sophisticated and suave. It has those those elements. And then the band sort of, once we've got that sort of palette of sounds together, we've sort of, that's, we're just going to stick with that. There's no electronics or very, very limited if we do. I don't think we use any synths or anything. There's a little bit, there's a little bit actually, but it's all generated from those instruments. So it was mm. we were quite, sort of, quite disciplined about that. It does make a lot of sense. It's really fitting to the character and the style. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that main motif, you know, where you're you're describing it as irregular and unorthodox in the way that you put it together. That's kind of a reflection of the character as well. He's this irregular person in some ways. Yeah, I mean, he he absolutely is. He's a sort of he's unusual in that. I don't, and that's where this might not translate in the in the US, or it might do. But he is a kind of misfit in his own party. So he is in in this the sort of for the Conservative Party, which is the right of centre party in the UK. But a lot of those guys, we have a sort of odd school system over here where a lot, there's sort of quite a lot of people go to private sort of fee-paying schools and generally representatives of the Conservative Party, uh, ministers of the Conservative Party, they're traditionally, I mean, it's a stereotype, but they're stereotypically traditionally sort of from those education establishments. And he is not from one of those. He's a sort of uh, publicly educated individual. And that straight away sort of sets him apart from all of his colleagues in his party. So he is a sort of a bit of an outsider. He's quite a maverick. He doesn't think like a lot of the rest of them do. He's quite mischievous as well in that respect. I mean, when you're writing any kind of music and trying to tell a story, you spend quite a bit of time thinking about the story. And then you mess around for quite a few days, really, just thinking about the story, trying to work out what might work, trying loads of different things out. I don't think you can almost read too much into these things. I think if you can think of it, probably a composer, who's, they've probably spent a bit of time thinking about that as well. I mean, you spend a lot of time thinking about these things. At some stage, at some level, it all sort of subconsciously sort of filters in there somehow. That's the hope, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Going back a little bit when you're talking about how some of the reaction has been people really liking the score. I mean, it does sound new to people. You know, you're you're talking about you know some of David Shire's music. I actually was listening to the conversation Thank two you. days ago because you have you know in that film you also have kind of that overriding piano theme. So obviously, you know, there there's kind of the similarity with that. But yeah, I mean, that's the, the reaction that I've seen as well. Well, I, it's been really nice. I had, I mean, that, the whole process has been really nice. I don't, cause it, well, nice is just a silly word, but it's been lovely, the whole process, because I, I think, as I say, most of the time, a lot of composers' work 
it goes unnoticed and that's fine mm. i can't get a weird sort of perverse kick out of that so stealth scoring and you know you go and, i'll go and see a film if it's on my local cinema and just quietly sit at the back and then hear people as they come out and see if they kind of were scared or sad and i quite I like that you know that's kind of cool but if it's quite nice it is nice you know it's quite nice with someone so you know it's when someone actually notices that what you've done say i really liked it you know because at this point i suppose it is it's an obvious melody, it's an obvious cut, two or three themes that come and it's an obvious sort of thing. So that aspect of it has been really lovely. And I've had so many sort of people get in touch saying they really enjoyed it, which is great. But also the process of doing it during, we had a very specific period where we were properly locked down in the UK. And I think this score was done in that period. So I wrote it here at home, obviously, but then towards the end of that period, we were trying to work out how we were gonna record it. And so there were a couple of interesting things about that. Firstly, it was the first session in London that was recorded post-lockdown. It wasn't really post-lockdown. We had to get in touch with the Musicians' Union, all the musicians. We had to get specialist cleaners in, see if we could do it, sign loads of extra forms with loads of lawyers. It was an absolute nightmare to make it work. And I was like, you just can't do this stuff remotely. We have to get these guys in a room together. And so we went into Air Studios and recorded, which is a fantastic studios, and recorded. Yeah. And the other fantastic thing is you called whoever you wanted and they were all free because <laughs> everything had been cancelled. So, so what, was, what was lovely about that was seeing the musicians as they kind of came into the studio one by one, we recorded individually and then you know, had separation between bass and drums. And anyway, we did as, as much as we could. We did it sort of as sensibly as we could, as responsibly as we could. But it was just great seeing their faces come in after, I mean, I was going to say three months, it's basically 10 weeks where we really didn't leave our houses and you just went to the shop and that was it. And everyone was masked up and just to get supplies and that was it. And no one was going into work. It was really quite extreme. I mean, I've, I know this is not an unusual thing, but it's just in this particular context right. for this, this school or well, for all of our lives, it is an unusual thing. Isn't it? It's not something that we've ever experienced any other year. And so it was just lovely to see their faces coming in through the doors and just the hope maybe we're out of this is this kind of, you know, because I suppose recorded music is one of the things that we can now do a bit. Um, in a sort of socially, physically distanced manner. We can do a bit of that. So I think that the musicians coming in sort of, and their, their realisation that, you know, maybe there is a source of income a little bit and we might start being able to do this. And then sure enough, you know, the next few weeks, as we were in and out of their studios mixing, the sort of orchestra started coming in and, you know, it all, it all started happening again. And it's cool, you know, so it sort of started up again, but it was lovely to see the beginning of that process. I felt so lucky to be a musician and busy during that period as well, because so many of my friends were just their entire diaries were cancelled for the next year you know in many ways i think this job was a massive blessing for me really i imagine for a lot of the, the musicians that came in too obviously they're going to be happy that it's it worked for them after having you know none for however long but also that i imagine it's something fun to play because it's fun to listen to you know it's not they're not recording mostly underscore incidental music it's it's yeah. you know, strong melodies throughout I know I really I always worry about that with with because obviously a lot of the time you do have to write we, they call them footballs and so you know when they've got you know this when they've got so for anyone's when you've got semi-breves or whole notes in America you call them but you know mm -hmm. the big four beat notes and then obviously a lot of score is basically that just nice nice straightforward string chords you know split across the four parts and the double bass the octave below and they're just playing slow but it, and, it, and it, with a few swells and hairpins you know crescendos and diminuendos here and there and it it's irritating because it does really work. It's unbelievably boring for those guys to play. And you get like, there's some of the best musicians in the world and there's Air or Abbey Road, these studios, you know, it's phenomenal musicians and they're sitting there just playing the most dull kind of like, you know, third, fourth grade music. <laughs> just like, but that's, that is basically what most, the lot of the job, a lot of the time is that. And that's kind of just, cause that's, it's, a, it's functional music. That's what works. You know, you need tones and you need that, you know, just sort of, just gently set, set a scene. Whereas exactly as you say, this, was a different thing for them. There was some fun stuff they could really get their teeth into. And I did 
we were lucky. Like I say, we got you know we got the Kit Downs, who's a phenomenal, phenomenal jazz pianist, who came in and was able to do his stuff on it. And then Martin France again, just ludicrous drummer, jazz drummer, who was amazing. And for the, some of those drum sequences, you know, I won't give anything away. But the end of episode two is quite a remarkable thing happens, and he just he just went for it and watched the picture and just just did his thing and. It's just joy to be able to work with those guys. Same thing with Ollie Pashley. He's a phenomenal clarinetist, that guy. So I just, it was really lovely to be able to give them something. And then just also, you know, there were themes, but then also there were moments where they could just run with it and go and do some crazy stuff. And actually, there's some, there's some pretty crazy stuff in there, which is kind of fun, like some properly like avant-garde, crazy clarinet messing around and, and some crazy drumming. And so it's been quite, it was really fun to do that. I actually think that's really interesting because so much of the time, and in my experiences, you know, whatever is scored, it's just, it's written for the film and, and that's it. But you know, having kind of that jazz aspect and the fact that at least in the States and I, you know, I, I think at the UK as well, you don't really hear, you don't hear that style as much in film music. So having the drummer playing fills and basically soloing and, and the same with the clarinetist and the, and the pianist, how was that for you kind of turning those more spontaneous moments into an actual functional score? Well, that is, that's a really good question. And it's, I've struggled with this. No, I haven't struggled with it, but I'm, I have an interesting battle with this because I think, you know, your job as a composer is to write music and be sort of quite uh, prescriptive about it. And then you notate it and then give it to musicians. That's the traditional concept of what a composer is. And then increasingly, you've got composers that don't do that at all. And a lot of musicians, some of the best musicians I know, wouldn't even know if something was D minor or whatever it is, you know, to play. They just know and it feels right. And that's, that's how they navigate their way through the musical journeys that they kind of explore. But I think I have discovered having one of the luxuries of sort of film scoring and uh, scoring things for TV is that you get to sort of delve your toes uh, irreverently in other worlds, whether that be sort of jazz world or the classical world or culturally completely different. You know, I did a documentary for about tragedy uh, from some Chinese um, immigrants in the UK um, eight years ago. And I remember we got loads of Chinese musicians in and obviously I had no idea about any of that stuff. Or last year I did some stuff uh, with a load of African musicians from Sen Senegalese musicians who are fantastic. And so you, you sort of, you then become a sort of producer and how prescriptive can you be in those circumstances? And initially when I started out, 20, 20 odd years ago, I was very prescriptive. I was like, well, this is exactly what you've got to do. And I notated it and then got a translator to sort of translate these things to various different people. And the results were not so good. So I think the job, then I've, I've slowly, gradually realized that you need to be prescriptive up to a point. And then you need to be aware of the individual's skills and their, their idiosyncratic way of playing or the fact that they might be from a completely different musical culture. And then you need to be aware of that. And then allow them to do their thing but within a framework that is then going to hopefully be useful to you and have enough takes so you're exactly right so in, for instance this is a bit more straightforward it's not sort of cultural appropriation or anything like that it's right. just literally these guys are from a different musical culture jazz background i'm not really from that background but i know i can sort of hear i can sort of tap into that and you know that this scene we want and i for someone like martin for the drummer i wasn't much more specific rather with the picture I showed him the scene a couple of times and I literally stood next to him while he was by the drums. And I'm, not, I'm a string player, I'm a pianist and a cellist, or cellist and, a, and I play with a piano. And I was sort of standing next to him going, yeah, and, and I was like, just making loads of crazy noise. Yeah, 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 what are this, like this, yeah, 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 okay, cool, cool, cool. And then we did four or five, ten, and that was it. And then it was just like, great. And then we sort of edited it a little bit, but roughly speaking, because the, the luxury was the director was there, 
if I thought it was going to be too, if he thought it was going to be too much and it's just going to be to so see the cutting room floor once they got to the mixed stage, the dub, you know, they, then I knew that wasn't going to happen because he was there. So once he'd said, so he often would say, in fact, specifically with the drumming stuff, there often the reason we don't see that much of that kind of scoring is basically because it does interfere with the digestive noise and the dialogue because right. it's really quite sort of, so for those moments, I'd have a chat with the director before, so this is what I'm thinking, it means it's going to be a bold manoeuvre and it's only going to work if you turn it up and that is basically the main principle bit of the sound at that point um, because they have a, they have to make a choice at the mix stage you can't have the music dialogue and all the effects which are the three big things you've got to push and pull people's emotions and stories and whatever you want to do at any point you can't have them all full-on all the time one basically at some point has to take prominence and then the other one has to come up and then sometimes you can have a couple playing with each other and, and of course as a composer and as an effects uh, sort of uh, sound effects and sound designer you think about those things a lot while you're doing it when you're dealing with drums and a drum solo and fills there's not a lot of room there's not a lot of bandwidth frequency bandwidth for anything else do you know what i mean so it is that's i suppose why it's slightly rarer it sort of gets in the way but you see it going back to the 70s films you know you see it in, in gene hackman what's that the french connection you think about mm. all that like, it was like brazen bright noise all the time and there's a crazy drumming and taxi driver obviously that very famous like cleaning the cab there, there are there are but it's it's quite old school you're totally right because especially with the drums you know you can you can push the levels down and then it's almost like unless you want something that's a subconscious rhythm playing in the background what's the point if you're if you're having these just crazy drumming segments they've they've got to be in the forefront and just almost battering the viewer because yeah exactly it, it loses all the effectiveness otherwise exactly exactly that so it's like, you know, once again, a lovely thing to be able to be allowed to do that sort of thing. It was really, it was good fun. And to sort of pretend to be a bit of a jazzer <laughs> for a few months. <laughs> that kind of leads me to something else. You did some jazz adjacent work in Shame. And obviously there was a lot of older jazz recordings in that film as well. And I think Welcome to the Punch had a more electronic feel. And your score for the show Wild Bill had a more acoustic westerny feel as well so you've hit yeah. a lot of you've hit a ton of different genres over the years so obviously leading more into jazz has to be kind of a nice change of pace for you yeah it was it was actually it was a it was a really lovely thing to do and i loved i loved the fact that it allowed me to use instrumentalists who were a bit more fluid and a bit more able to sort of think on their feet it's not a negative thing about classical musicians classic trained musicians i mean i'm a classic trained musician myself but in this particular case it was nice to be able to come up with themes and variations and then have those as sketches. And then just, we'd record what I'd written and what I'd envisaged. And then we'd do sort of three or four wild takes and invariably something out of the wild takes was like, yeah, that's really much better than what I would have done. Great, thanks. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's a lovely, a lovely, you know, so, so I've got hopefully what I feel it was a very symbiotic relationship. And it'll say a respectful relationship. I mean, I've got such a huge amount of respect for instrumentalists and musicians and in fact it's to the extent where I think that's that's one of the reasons I work as hard as I do on this because I'm I'm desperate to sort of uh not let the musicians down when they come through the studio doors <laughs> like, oh, I've done this time it's terrible you know it's just like I want them to think oh this is quite a good thing you know so that does sort of get gets gets them going but you're right so I think that's one of the, the lovely things of doing film music is you really tap into the characters and the worlds of these people I mean while Bill exactly that's Rob Lowe's character it was kind of bit wild westy and kind of folky yeah. and kind of completely different and jangly and quite fun and but there was a bit of english in that one there's there's a bit, bit there's a load of um low woodwind like bassoons quantum bassoons bassoons bass clarinets as well it's kind of weird sort of mash up of things but that was quite folky and uh 
I quite, I'm quite into a bit of folky stuff actually. I have just finished a film where we've done a little bit, a bit of folky stuff in that as well, and that was quite, it was quite fun. But yeah, it's nice to tap into all these different worlds. I think a lot often I get asked by um, composers who are studying film composition about that. Do you not worry that you then don't have a sound of your own sound? And I think I've never really thought about that. The only thing I'd say to people who ask those questions is, is it's all about storytelling, musical storytelling. And, and you, as long as you're true to yourself, it sounds so naff, but if you're true to yourself and you love what you're doing, you're really trying to do the best thing you possibly can and you're, you like what you're doing, then naturally your sort of taste selection all of your musical experiences refracted through your sort of prism of what you're able to do and your taste will come out in some way, shape, form, whether you're doing something that's a bit jazzy or something that's a bit Wild Westy or whether it's a bit folky or whether, you know what I mean? It'll, it'll mm-hmm. essentially the DNA underneath it is probably still going to be you in some way, shape, form. It's not pastiche composition in that sense. You're just, you're just, you're just tapping into a, a sound world, but then doing your own thing within that. Well, that makes sense. But I think for a lot of, Fans or younger composers coming up, they've been used to people like Hans Zimmer and John Williams who have these, you know, they, they don't necessarily always do the same style, but it, their their work is can be very distinct. Or you, know, you have composers like Philip Glass or you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, they have their sound and you hear five seconds of it and you know, okay, that's them. But for the vast, vast majority of composers you have to almost be a chameleon to be able to jump between all these different genres and so yeah you're totally right as you do it you have your distinct aspects or maybe you you like variations on a particular motif that you know finds its way throughout scores having a a sound that's yours and yours alone is i I think it's a remnant of people listening to a a handful of these uber famous composers and thinking everything's like that i think that's right and I think, but also what's interesting about that is you care for what you wish for. Cause those, I know those guys, you know, have, it's, it's sometimes troubling for, you know, if you're Philip Glass, obviously a phenomenal composer, but mm. he's probably quite want to do something a bit different, but then they just want the same thing that he did 30, 40 right. years ago. Do you know what I mean? So I, and I, I totally, I can imagine that in some ways, that'd be a difficult thing to sort of uh, try and navigate your way out of really in some ways. What I am saying is I know that some of those composers, I know some of those composers and I know some of them feel very constrained by the success mm. of their previous work and by the time everyone knows about it and everyone wants it it's something they did 20 30 years ago and they're still being asked to do the same thing so I think that's in some ways a bit of a poison chalice I think as well you interestingly Trent Reznor as Ross is also amazing stuff they do it's probably slightly easier to feel like you're being more diverse all the time because they're basically just like crazy synth sonic explorers <laughs> effects and it's like just let's go it's cool so i think that that will always feel fresh for those guys so i think they maybe they maybe they're the best maybe they've got the best best <laughs> option <laughs> basically it's it's more about what people came really really famous for so because even if you think about think about john williams back in johnny mm-hmm. williams day like you know if, if you listen to really early scores it's pretty jazzy and different for that guy as well or like you know catch me if you can amazing you know complete it's not what most people associate john williams like massive orchestral scores for sort of superhero movies and those kinds of things that's a different you know there's a, one or two scores that those kinds of individuals have become super super famous for and that's yeah. you can assume that's what they do all the time but of course it's quite nice to hear that you know they're doing something very different it's funny you mentioned that I was listening to uh, Cinderella Liberty. It's early 70s or late 60s uh, film that John Williams scored. And it's like super jazzy and it's a ton of fun yeah. to listen to. I think it actually won or was nominated for an Academy Award. But wow. like I've never heard anybody talk about this. It's so fun. But yeah, you're right. I would love for John Williams to just say, 
yeah, I'm just going to do a pure jazz score and, and it's just going to be off the cuff and fun and I'm not going to have you know, eight really distinct themes. I'm just going to have fun with it. Kind of on the flip side, you know, if you're someone like Philip Glass or Harold Budd and Robin Guthrie who, who have this distinct minimalist sound as well, it's also going to be limiting the types of films that people want you to work on. Yeah. I don't think many people are going to say, hey, Philip Glass, like, come do this nonstop action film that we have. No, sure. Uh, to be honest, I would, I would love to hear that. I think that'd be fascinating, <laughs> but I'm, yeah. I'm not holding my breath for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I think it's true. I suppose all of this is a moot point in some ways. You just like, you just do what you do, don't you? And then right. you just try and do the best you can do. And then I'd like to think that I'm sort of steering my career in various directions. But the reality is that when something comes in, I'm generally like, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks very much. <laughs> so I just, I just sort of take on various things and then, uh, and then see, see what happens. What's been quite nice about Roadkill is because a lot of the films I've done over recent years have been fantastic sort of British independent films that are largely fairly dark or depressing or sort of worthy true stories or you know I've done an awful lot of that and it's been quite nice to do something that's quite distinctly different uh, from that I've sort of I've I've in, in in a way as well been sort of slightly typecast into if you're making a sort of an indie British movie and you don't have a massive budget but uh, you want some interesting score then I'm sort of one of the people that might be near near the top of your list um, but it, I'm hoping that after this and a couple of other things I've done that I might also be near the top of the list if you want something a bit different from that as well. <laughs> and for, not, not, for none, 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 none other reason, then sometimes it's quite, it's quite depressing and dark, dark to be sort of working on something so heavy for so many months. It's, I, think about the, I think about shame though. I mean, Stephen McQueen as well, he's not like, he's not, he just, I suppose, you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be a, there doesn't necessarily need to be a connection between the people making things and then the, 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 the sort of darkness of the subject matter. I mean, he's a very ebullient, charismatic lover of life a joyful character that guy i mean he really is he's he's got a lot to say but yeah that's a quite a dark that is a worse a very dark film as well that is a very dark film but it's good it was a good film to do i won't say it was a joy to watch but it was a very good film to watch <laughs> <laughs> hitting all these different genres and you're you're classically trained is there a, a genre that you haven't kind of really worked on that much that you want to or one that you really want to go back to and, and work in more? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. I, I am really interested in exploring. I spend a lot of time doing drone tone based things, which sounds very boring, but I, I think there's an awful lot of, I find that quite fascinating, the, the sort of textual different varieties that you can get within uh, making different tones and noises and how that can elicit a massive range of emotions with very, very minor changes and things. I mean, talking about Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, they're the masters of that sort of stuff. But I've spent a lot of time doing that and messing around with diegetic noise, so noise from the mm -hmm. films, and then heightening that and turning that into something musical. And I've done a lot of that with a filmmaker called Clio Barnard, who's a fantastic filmmaker in the UK. I just finished a film with her, which is, does a bit more of that. But then increasingly blending that world in with folk, which I did a bit with a song I did a couple of years ago with PJ Harvey, and then a bit very recently with another Irish folk singer called Karen Casey, which I've just done for her, this um, filmmaker Clive Barnett's latest film. And I, I'm very interested in sort of exploring that, to going further into sort of folk, droney folkness would be quite interesting. So I, I'm interested in that. And also the other thing, I have four children and I would really love to do 
something that they might be able to watch. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I, I look at, I mean, obviously he's an absolute genius, but I look at all the stuff that Michael Giacchino does or any, any of the sort of animated movies. It'd be great mm-hmm. fun to do one of those. I'd love to do that. For the same reason, you're just tapping into so many different styles and genres and like, it'd, it'd be great to do some, some of that as more on-the-nose scoring. Um, I, I get the sense it'd be great fun. I'm sure it'd be equally really, really hard and there'd be teams of people right. shouting at you all the time. But I think at least doing with something... Uh, that's meant to be sort of fun and entertaining for kids might be just quite a fun thing to do for a bit. That has to be a little frustrating in some ways for them to to know what you do in an absolute sense, but to maybe not be able to actually experience what you've literally done quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting. That's beginning to become a thing actually, because the the eldest, so the young ones are very small. They're only four, but the the uh, the eldest is eleven, and the, then uh, the next one is nine, and they are so they're kind of aware of what I do but they can't really watch anything I do because it's all a bit too adult. And that, I think they are finding that annoying. And they can sort of go, they can go on YouTube and they'll hear something and get depressed by another depressing song that Daddy's <laughs> done. <laughs> it's like, um, but it would be quite nice to do <laughs> something a bit more fun they could watch. It's a minor thing. I really can't complain. I'm lucky to do what I'm doing. And I feel like you know, every job I do and begin, I do feel, you know, I feel like the luckiest person really to be able to do it. It's good fun. I, I actually would appreciate if, if, Later on, you could email me some of the drone work that you've done. Because oh, yeah. that's, I think most people, no offense, find the genre absolutely boring. But yeah, cool. I've listened to that for, for years. When I was younger, I, I, uh, I made a little drone. It, it wasn't very good, but I'm, I'm a, a big fan of the genre. So I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear what you've, what you've done with it. Well, I, yeah, I've spent a lot of time doing that. And I think you're, you're right. I mean, I often those films you, when when you finish the score i sort of very proud of them and they sort of work very well and everyone's happy but they you never release them as a standalone standalone thing this is like just unbelievably boring to listen to for most people we all know with having a drone an indian sort of you know harmonium drone or any kind of sort of drone and then people singing a melody against it it's a classic thing in any art isn't it that there's tension and then home and so moving away from the drone more and more distant and then you're coming back and it's that relationship between expanding away from the drone clashing from the drone and then coming back and then being so aware that there's a tonal center or somewhere that's home and then moving away from it warping and how you do that with blending sounds whether they be reed based sounds or string based sounds or organ sounds or electronic sort of fuzzy sounds or and how those things blend together and how that sometimes creates tension and then you go back there because some of the tones themselves rather than just tonally it being on a c it might just be that it's a fuzzy guitar sound that sounds like home and then anything that's abrasive and away from that is going away from it and then you come back it's no different to my mind from Beethoven uh, or sort of Bach doing uh, sort of a prelude you start in a key you know the most famous example you start in C then by the time you get to the middle you're away you're away and when are you going to get how are you going to get home and then you finally you get home it's essentially the same thing with drones and tones but it's just dealing with things more in a more textural way with folk what's lovely about that is then you can stick a melody over the top of that and then help hide mm. that I kind of love the idea of that I think it's kind of I really like it <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I, I do too I no one ever listens to me when I talk about drone or if I, if I go on about how much I love the, like William Basinski's dis- disintegration loops. I listen to that all the time. But yeah, there's, fortunately, there's not a big audience for like five hour compositions that sound like the same thing the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. Film composing is, there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot of that in film composing. So it's quite a nice, it's quite a nice job for people who are into that because that's a lot of the time what you're asked to do. Circling back a little bit. It is something that's kind of so common because, it, you know, as you mentioned, there's the functional aspect, but yeah. people are so used to and 
married to the idea of that like Wagnerian leitmotif and expecting these really distinct thematic elements. I totally understand why people like that. I like it too, but it's not it's not what all film music is and it's not really what it all should be. It's it's appropriate in certain things and not appropriate in others. As the genre continues to expand and as more composers and musicians who aren't trained in doing that in the first place get involved in the genre, it the sounds continue to change and get broader and so I'm hoping that people's minds open a little bit and become fans of all the various genres that are, and styles that are used. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that, actually. I think it's, um, you know, when I do sort of occasionally do sort of film music talks to people at conservatoire or universities, they, they, people studying film music, it's, it, but I often mention musicians when you're studying, you know, you're studying music from hundreds of years ago, and this is a really, really, really new art form in, yeah. in the sort of evolution of music um, and the music that we're using. And it's, uh, we are really, really still finding our feet. A lot of these ideas and prejudices come because of that, because of the use of it, really. So I think there has, in, in certain circles, some people are sort of snobby about leitmotifs because they think it's uh, a little bit uh, obvious. And some people think that, you know, it wasn't that long ago when we were sort of doing silent movies and early sort of talkies where you'd have a, a picture of a woman with her hands shaking in front of her face and you'd have a diminished core, you know, sort of... And that's sort of seen as unsophisticated and therefore if we're doing the same thing now but you're right it's sort of horses for courses or if you're doing just a droney thing like the thing we were talking about there's still a massive amount of work goes into those things yeah. and creative thought and, and and there's room for all of these things and you're absolutely right it's it's, it's about it's about it being functional it's about it being apposite or appropriate or germane for the particular this particular drama uh, that you're dealing with or a particular set of kind of characters or emotions you're dealing with I and mean, i think that's what makes for me that's what makes it absolutely a fascinating job I think you'd be hard pushed to find anyone who does my job who is particularly snobby about because uh, I think you sort of even if you only really do one particular thing or you come at it from a, being in a band or whatever I think you're just doing it a little bit you realize that there's just so much depth in, in everything that anyone's doing at any level in any genre on this stuff that it's it's just it's quite mind-blowing really and it's you know and I think that's what's fascinating about it it's also kind of a bit unknown I, no, I don't think any well I certainly feel like I don't really know what I'm doing ever uh, and you're just it's sort of alchemy really you're just trying these things out and you, you know like the Hugh, the Hugh Laurie thing you well he's a bit mischievous and I'll try some chromatic thing I'll try messing around and you sort of have some ideas of what might work but you, I mean I probably I don't know I must have done 30 or 40 different little ditties before that one kind of like finally mm. was the one and you just trial and error really and then thankfully it's corroborated by other people so they go yes I think that's sick. and then you don't feel so much blame or ownership of it because well he said it was all right so <laughs> and and when the director says like oh yeah that works you go all right well that's if good. the, if the director likes it then I'm safe yeah <laughs> I wish we could talk for three more hours but uh might be a little too much I don't think people want to hear us talk for that long I did have I did have well, one more question though that I wanted to ask you and you're yeah. talking about planning on releasing the score itself pretty soon. And I know that you actually have a surprising amount of scores that you've released that have dialogue samples from the film interlaced within. And it, I actually kind of like that because it, I think it helps shape the narrative of the score that you've released, that it's not simply a piece of music, but it, it also has its own arc. Is that something that you're considering for Roadkill? And when do you decide whether to do that or not? You know, some of the soundtracks I loved listening to when I was growing up had that in it. And I sort of thought that that's really nice. It's sort of, um, it takes you into that same zone and makes you realise what it's for. And I, 
I don't think it's a, some some musicians sort of see it as a lesser thing because of that, but I think it is it is functional music. It is married to something, and it, it comes from that, and is its whole existence and reason for being is because of the drama, because of the story. So, I think sometimes it's a really lovely thing if you can have it actually linked with that sound or with one thing, because it's like that sort of Cohen Brothers and sort of Skip Luce and Carter Bowell kind of combination of those. You know, the sound they're all they, they all think about these things together. You know, and I think I, I try and do it. I know lots of people do my job to do as well so I really think quite carefully about all of the sound when I'm doing the music or whether they might marry together so I do quite like the idea of doing that where it's appropriate I think often I do it when there are scenes which I think are really fantastic and the music might be really interesting and you might be really interested in it because it's a bit drone based or tonal it's an essential part of the score but actually on its own it might be a bit meaningless for a lot of people so then i kind of i'll put dialogue in those scenes it's a, like it's a little jog of a memory to really relive and re enjoy the film but my my rule of thumb is if you're not that sort of geeky or really into into, into soundtracks is this an interesting is this a standalone piece of music that you'd be thinking yeah, that's kind of a nice mm. thing to listen to or it's interesting or it's diverting or there's something about it and i think that's my rule of thumb and there's a very sort of long-winded answer i think for, for roadkill I have prepared the soundtrack and in that instance we haven't used any of the dialogue from Roadkill. There's a couple of reasons why we didn't decide to in that one. I mean, the simplest answer is there's a lot of quite nice melodic music that's just quite nice music really so we just thought well let's put it up. When you do put the text in, when you, it creates more lawyery problems and you know what I mean, you suddenly have to, everyone has to approve it and then the music people don't like it because they're not going to be able to sync your music to something else because it's got dialogue all over it and I don't care about that stuff, but they obviously want to try and make some money and then the writers have to approve it. You often have, you often want to sort of space things out a bit more and then you're not allowed to do that. And then, so it, get, it does, can get, I'm really happy that you like those moments in the soundtracks because I have basically, when they're in there, I really want them to be in there because you have to fight a bit harder to get those things in there. But I think it makes it more enjoyable for the listener. If I put a soundtrack out, the only reason I'll do it is I hope this is going to be worthwhile and interesting for people to listen to. Just, I know it sounds really obvious, but I think a lot of people, I mean, I've done an awful lot of things, and I've only got you know, seven or eight things up there because I think, you know, and there's a lot of other things that I'm very proud of, but they just don't work on their own. Makes sense. I think at the end of the day, as a listener, that's obviously the preferable thing. If you've, if you've done 60 things, you know, some people are completionists and, and want to hear every single thing that you've done, but this, this is going to sound really obvious, but you're not composing the music to be listened to on its own. It's, right. it's first and foremost in the context of the film or the show or the scene. And mm. if it works on its own, that's great. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly where I see it. That is exactly right. But happily for Roadkill, ge genuinely happy for Roadkill, there's just a nice... I mean, I had, I've had loads of people. But the, <laughs> the, but I've, yeah, it, I was watching it on, when it went out. So it was be fun. sat down with my wife and we watched it. There's loads of people like talking about the music, saying they really liked it. Is it you can release the dots, you know, the music, the piano pieces, you can release them. So we, we've done a little thing on Faber and some some people kind of got in touch saying, I can't doubt, then I had to download mm -hmm. it. So I've like had to print out loads of scores and send them to people. And it's been fun, you know, like I really like that. It's, in this particular instance, they are sort of happily, but as you say, because it's happened to serve, serve the, the drama, they are basically nice little standalone tunes, basically, they're in, in their own right, which is kind of cool. That's been a lucky coincidence, really, more than anything. That's cool. I'm looking forward to when it releases in the U.S. Unfortunately, I think with location tracking and all that, I can't use my my wife's family's login for the <laughs> the U.K. players. So I've, I've got to sure, wait a little. I'm longer. sure there'll be a way of. Uh, <laughs> Harry, I I really appreciate it. It was it was great chatting with you. Well, it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to chat to you as well. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks for thanks very much for talking to me about it. 
Oh yeah, fun. of course. It was it was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of your drill music as well. I'll send it over. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, you have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Take Bye. care.